Hello and welcome to this week's edition of SBC This Week, a roundup of news and views from around the Southern Baptist Convention. SBC This Week is hosted by Amy Whitfield and Jonathan Howe. Well, hello, Jonathan. How are you? Doing well, doing well. How are things in North Carolina? They are uh, great, I'm sure, as is everywhere. Weather's a little weird right now. Yeah, it's a little warm. Um, a little warm. Yeah. Which is okay. Warm. Yeah, super rainy today. Um, but it's it's very interesting coming up on Christmas time. But yes. it's, as usual, very busy time, lots of festive gatherings, things like that. And so we're just trying to keep up. Yeah, are you coming back to Tennessee for Christmas? We will. We'll come uh, on the 26th. Okay. So, so for, after Christmas. for a few days. Yes, lots right. of family stuff going on. Very cool, very cool. Uh, I will be staying here, so that'll be nice. No traveling for Lovely. us. Lovely. So, Lovely. That'll be good. And just by the way, listeners, we will have episodes the next two weeks. Uh, probably won't be covering too many issues in the SBC because there's likely not to have that much uh, going on. Uh, but at the same time, we're going to do a year-end recap, some of the biggest stories of the year, uh, and talk about that next week. And then the week after, we will talk about 2016, maybe what to look forward to in the SBC in 2016. Some some questions to ask about 2016 to, to see where we are headed in the future. Uh, but today, we're going to jump right into it and start in Louisiana. We started in Louisiana like two or three weeks in a row now. Uh, big news, though, coming out of a local Baptist church down in New Orleans, Vintage Church, uh, fighting to stay open amidst neighbor complaints and a criminal summons against their pastor. So just in a nutshell, what happened is Vintage Church, pastored by Rob Welton. Uh, his dad is Don Welton, Don. who's mm-hmm. the pastor at First Baptist Spartanburg, South Carolina, where you were over the Christmas or Thanksgiving break. Yes. Uh, but uh, Rob's church is uh, renovating their space, their worship, one of their worship spaces in New Orleans. So they got a permission from the city to put a tent up outside in the parking lot to have service while they're renovating inside. So mm-hmm. instead of worshiping in the regular space, they'll worship in the tent. Well, one of the neighbors called the cops and called the cops and called the cops and called Just the cops. Stop. And uh, so apparently there's a zoning law that says that you can't be over 60 decibels you know, outside. Like the noise can't be over 60 decibels, which if you don't really know how loud that is, it's not very loud. Uh, we were. I was sitting in a coffee shop this morning. I have a decibel meter on my phone. Uh, sitting in a coffee shop this morning, talking about this story with a couple of coworkers, and it was ninety decibels in the coffee shop. Just sitting in a, just a random, like a normal, you know, normal sound, normal yeah. background noise. Nothing loud. Yeah. Nothing crazy. We're sitting in the back, even ninety decibels in there, and you know, sixty decibels is basically a quiet room, uh, and it it just really is not loud at all. And so they. Vintage, to their credit, they're not really fighting this big time. You know, they're not being really hostile about it. But right. Matt Brichetto, who's uh, the the pastor at the executive pastor that was preaching at the at this campus, basically said, "Okay, we'll we'll abide. We won't we won't have any amplification. I'll preach just normal voice. You know, no sound system or anything like that. We'll, we're trying to make this right." Cops still came. They still called him. Uh, still came out. They went over the sixty, even just like normal talk, because normal talking is not. 60 is just too too low, really. Right. And fingerprinting him and everything. And now they've taken the parish to court about the uh, the noise regulation because it's saying it's basically not allowing them the freedom to worship and freedom to uh, act as a church, which right. is basically defined as music and preaching. Yeah. Well, th- th- this story is very interesting. Uh, and it just shows sort of a shift 
just a shift in culture and the way we're thinking about things. I mean, obviously we've seen that for a while, but it reminds me of a story from a few years ago that had nothing to do with the church. It was in Nashville. Um, are you familiar with Emma Jean and Willie? I am. Yes. Really, really great blue jeans. Um, yeah, you're big, you're a big fan. I know. I love Emma Jean and Willie. So they, uh, in addition to being a store that sells really great denim, they also did a lot of things in their community and they used to have a, um, a live music event and they had an issue with their neighbors and eventually they had to shut theirs down. They had police come and now nothing ever like this fingerprinting and all that. Um, you, you see this sometimes when neighborhoods are changing and things like that. You've got neighbor complaints. It, I feel like, though, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, I feel like for ever, for decades, people are pretty willing to let churches do what they do. Yeah. Um, and, and, and from what I understand in the story, this has been an ongoing thing with one guy. Uh, yeah. It's, it's basically one complaint, one complainer who yeah. just really wants the church to be gone. Right. And, and so communities just sort of allowed this, um, that allows to allow churches to, to act and to do what they do. And things have just changed. And this is just another sign. We know it, but this is just yet another sign that we're constantly going to come up against things we've never had to face before. We've had a lot of freedom to do as we, um, as we choose. And so, I don't know. This is, it'll be interesting where this goes. The, the uh, quote in Ed's blog um, just said that in this article in 2011, he said, told Sarah Pulliam Bailey, the future of religious liberty is going to be in the area of zoning and not in the area of yeah. speech discrimination. And we've seen it some in New York City mm-hmm. with people you know, using schools and things like that. But this, this is a new one. That's even one of Dr. Rayner's 16 trends to watch for in 2016 is the, the continued you know, kind of rub between government officials and churches for zoning regulations. Yeah, it's unbelievable. All right, well, we'll keep an eye on that. I think they're going back to court uh, the week of Christmas. I I thought it said the 22nd of December because uh, they had gotten, they were supposed to have something this past week, and I think it got pushed back to next week. So keep an eye on this story and uh, see, and we'll update you as things progress. Moving on to South Carolina, the South Carolina Baptist Convention has tapped their reserves to send a million dollars to IMB at the end of the year. Yeah, uh, and some of this, you know, we've we've obviously been doing these state convention roundups over the last several weeks, but stories just are continuing to come up um, that essentially they looked at um, how they handle their budget, which is that they send a certain amount um beyond their split, which is, it's like 5941. Yes, they're I think. 41% right now. Yeah, so they send that on, but then they have um, a sort of thing set aside that they send directly to the IMB, and they, they just realize that they're closer than ever to their budget goal, and they could send 450000 from their budget onto the IMB, so they were, you know, prepared to do that, and then they just decided... Um, let's go ahead and take what we have, take our reserves and bump that up to $1 million. Um, so as we're just starting to see lots and lots of groups sending things and doing things uh, for the IMB. In yeah, we talked about that church in Texas last week. Yeah, in, you know, in response to the news over the last few months, 
Um, this is just one more. And so we're seeing things at church levels, at entity levels, at state conventions, things like that. And South Carolina has shown up with a million dollars. But this is the kind of thing that should continue uh, to inspire, to inspire individuals. I mean, they, we're having conversations with our kids right now about um, the International Mission Board, about the Lottie Moon offering. We've talked about it before, but our conversations are different now. Yeah. The actions like this um, really should inspire all of us to look at what we've got. How can we do more? Yes. And uh, just to note, I've seen so much on social media about churches just busting through their goals for Lottie Moon this year. And uh, so I'm interested to see. I think you're right. You made a call a couple of weeks ago that you think this will be the biggest Lottie Moon gift ever. Oh, by and, far. Uh, and by far. I think you may be right. Just just seeing the direction things are going. So still waiting on South Carolina for a executive director. Hopefully uh, in 2016 we'll yes. get that. Uh, they've been yeah. without one for a while. Richard Harris has been filling in as the interim executive director. So uh, we will keep an eye out on everything going on in South Carolina. And moving on now to Georgia, moving south. This past week in Georgia, Mike Griffin, who's a spokesman for the Georgia Baptist Convention, uh, I guess now the Georgia Mission Board, testified to the Commission on Medical Cannabis, appointed by the governor, Nathan Deal, uh, basically in opposition to medical marijuana cultivation in the state of Georgia. What do you think about this, Jonathan? I think this is a expected response. Yes. Um, I, I would be surprised had they taken the opposite angle. Yes. So I, I'm not sure it really warranted a, a big story, but uh, I think, you know, this is kind of like what's going on at Wheaton. Um, right. Wheaton is standing up for Orthodox Christianity, um, and the Baptists in Georgia are standing up for what you would expect Baptists to stand up for. Yes. Yeah. Um, the, but interestingly enough, this does bring to mind, and we, we always have to keep a historical perspective, that conversations we're having now are not the same as ones we had 50 years ago. Um, as I look around for the history moment every week, uh, one conversation I tracked was about, uh, there, there were people saying marijuana is worse than alcohol. Marijuana is better than alcohol. And, um, and there were actual discussions in Baptist press about this. Really? And Baptist, Baptist press is talking about uh, marijuana. That that's fascinating. Well, it was it, it was in context of a speaker that had come into uh, one of to into a, a state college, and it was in a time where things are were very different than they are now. Um, and uh, that that guest speaker made some assertions, and so then there were uh, folks stepping back and saying no. And and at the end of the day, the folks that you would assume took the line that we would take, and that the Georgia Baptists are taking that. Um, that there's quite a bit of, of danger in this and that we're going to oppose any legislation that would, you know. Yeah, and this comes in uh, in the wake of a resolution that was passed last month at the Georgia Baptist Convention annual meeting uh, opposing any legislation that would authorize the cultivation of marijuana in the state of Georgia. So, you know, this is the, the stance you expect them to take, and they are uh, taking that stance. And Mike Griffin uh, testified in that commission as such. Moving over to Kentucky, We've had this uh, go on a few times already in the recent months, but uh, a couple of churches uh, basically withdrawn membership from a local Baptist association for uh, hiring female pastors. Yeah, the local association is a place where we would often see wider cooperation, and um, there, there would be 
Baptist churches who maybe were not aligned with the Southern Baptist Convention. But as we see sort of a trickle-down effect um, with the Baptist faith and message that more groups, more uh, state conventions have taken it as sort of their um, statement of faith. And then as you bring it down to colleges and local associations, then the standards for cooperation are just, they're just different. They're the, the parameters are set in a certain way. And I think we're going to continue to see stories um, like this uh, happening just here and there. Yes. One little nugget in this story that I don't think I've ever seen before, but Lisa Zahalka, who is one of the pastors in uh, that's mentioned here. She's the pastor of both Trinity Baptist Church and Big Spring Bloomfield Presbyterian Church. That, I just thought that was odd that you, you could pastor two different churches in two different denominations at the same time. I know it's a small town and everything like that, and I understand that, but it, it just seemed kind of kind of different to have a, a pastor of two different congregations that are in two different denominational uh, structures and belief systems, I would guess. Yeah, I... Um... What's, what's interesting to me about that is we do see a lot of times folks who are maybe within multiple networks more than, you know, denominational bodies, but there's a pretty distinctive difference between uh, those two denominations, and that's interesting that you can uh, be both, but uh, I don't know. It would be an interesting question to ask if we ever got a chance to talk to someone there. All right. Well, that's going to do it for some of the news. One more point before we get to a special interview we got with Bob Smetana this week. A new Lifeway study on church and the holidays, basically what Americans feel about going to church at Christmas time. And they found that six out of 10 Americans typically attend church at Christmas time. Yeah, 61% said yes. I think that's interesting. And I also think that among those 61%, um, 77% of them said that the primary reason is to honor Jesus. Yeah, and I asked the question because I saw this number whenever it was being prepared. I saw this a couple of weeks ago. Down, I was down there, and they were preparing this report. Um, I asked them if this was a open ended question, or if yeah. it was a, you know, here's the choices. So they gave the choices of honor Jesus, observe tradition, be with friends and family, get in the Christmas spirit, and not sure. So this was a choices question, not an open ended question. Okay. So, so I think that number is not artificially high, but based on those choices, I think that's the choice that people feel like they, they really should choose that. Well, they feel like they should choose that one. Oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah. So I put a lot more stock in a 61% number than I do the 77% number. I don't doubt the 77% number. And I would love for the 77% of people to go to church at Christmas, do it because they're wanting to honor Jesus. But mm-hmm. with an open-ended question but, like that, I think maybe uh, people yeah, chose that. But I think that the, very likely they maybe they chose it because they think they should but they also really in the moment that's that's what they want I you know that what they well. want it to be which should tell us something about their openness you know yes. when um when we would have our christmas eve service when keith was pastoring in virginia we had a lot of folks that came every year on christmas most of the time they were visiting um family in town but it was the same you know, it was the same people and they really did. They really did love being there. They they were kind of engaged in it. You didn't get the sense that they were just tagging along um, for to to keep peace. I mean, I think that it really meant something to them. Um, and so, what what that should tell us is that there is a real openness to what this message is. And one of the other things, speaking of the openness, among those who don't attend church at Christmas time, fifty seven percent would likely attend 
if they were invited by someone they know. That, that's very interesting. And I'll tell you who taught me a lesson on this was a, a year ago, we had um, our Christmas concert here at Southeastern, you know, and here I am. I mean, our, our team is the one that's producing all of the little publicity, making the posters and things like that. Um, and I had a stack of little cards and Mary, um, our daughter saw those and she took it upon herself to go around our neighborhood, which is something we hadn't actually done. And we had neighbors that came huh. um, to, to come to this, this Christmas concert. And uh, because she just saw it and said, I want to I invite everybody. And they said yes. Um, and that taught us something to say, hey, hang on a second. We're, you know, she's, she's doing this thing that we haven't done. Um, but uh, I think that a, a lot of these stats line up with, with some others we've seen about, um, about what it, how people respond to a personal invitation, but re- really interesting and hats off again to, I guess it's Katie Schull. Those yep. graphics are fantastic. Yeah. You like the Christmas wreath, don't you? I do. I do. Putting those pie charts in the middle of a wreath. That makes me happy. That'll do it for the news this week. Let's move on to our interview with Bob Smetana. I had a chance to talk to Bob. Bob had an article this week. Amy, did you had a chance to read that yet? I did. I did. All that right. was. It, if there's a must-read article this week, that's the one. Uh, yes. Talking about Wayne Jolly, and he's a basically a cult leader, and is okay with that uh, because you can see the uh, the quote that's the headline. We talk about that in the interview with Bob, but uh, this is right here in our backyard here in Tennessee, and actually there's there's a branch of the gathering in North Carolina as well. Uh, yes. You sent me a link from that, a very disturbing video um, that I'm sure has probably been taken down by now uh but well it has but there's a an individual downloaded as many videos as possibly could and has put them back up okay. so there the the videos are out there but yeah that's they seem to have a a group here um in the burlington area which is about an hour and a half from us um but i've never heard of this yes yeah, it was here. one of the craziest stories i've ever read um unbelievable piece of investigative journalism Basically, this is a story that's six years into making. He got a call back in 2009 about this group, and it took him about six years to be able to track everything down, get all the information, and uh, and get the people to be okay with talking about it because uh, they feel very uh, threatened. So here's our interview this week with Bob Smetana about his story at Christianity Today about Wayne Jolly and the Gathering International. Joining us this week on SBC This Week is Bob Smetana. He is the senior news editor for Christianity Today. Bob, thanks for joining us. Oh, you're welcome. Glad to be here. All right, Bob, this week you dropped a story at Christianity Today about Wayne Jolly. Uh, it, the title of the story was pretty spectacular. It was a quote from Jolly in your article, I am called a cult leader. I really don't care. And uh, just tell us about like how you became aware of this story, and uh, we're going to talk about a couple of implications of the story, but just give us a little background on the story for those who may not have seen it yet. The story is about six years in the making. About six years ago, a woman from Georgia called me, said, she said, I think my family's involved in a cult there in uh, Tennessee, you know, just south of Nashville. And we gave him a bunch of money. He claims to have this worldwide ministry, and uh, we can't find any. He claims to have uh, six mil- five billion followers on his radio station. Yeah, and by the way, I looked up that radio broadcast. There's nothing online about, like, I can't find it, period. Yeah, so like, there's no, and she said the same thing. I can't, she said, I can't find it. I gave him a bunch of money. My family gave him money. Plus, I think he's a cult. And then, then a few weeks later, she backed off saying, look, 
this is going to ruin my family. I can't talk to you. So I've been watching it ever since. And so, and that was when you were with the Tennessee. And so it was a local that's story for you. Tennessee and Nashville. Yeah. So, so my one, one of my untold stories when I was there. So, uh, earlier this year, I got a call from a father whose daughter is in the group, uh, saying, you know, can you help us with this? Tell our story. And I knew a few ex members. He said he'd been connected with a few ex members. You want to talk to them? So that kind of opened the door, um, to telling the story. And it's basically about a uh, group that started out as a small Bible study, this minister who's uh, kind of a Pentecostal, prosperity gospel, spiritual fathering sort of pastor, joined the group as their Bible study teacher and basically took over. And in that group happened to be uh, a guy named Ed Cash, who was the co-writer for How Great Is Our God and a bunch of other worship songs. He's also a very uh, well-known Christian music producer. Yeah, he's probably the most well-known Christian music producer out there. He's worked with everybody. Yes, yeah, he's, he's got three Grammys for his work this year. He's, he's been producer of the year, songwriter of the year. You, he's got like 300 credits on the uh, CCLI copyright thing. So any, if you project your songs on the screen, you, you've seen his name. So his, his career happened to take off when this guy showed up. So this man named Wayne Jolly showed up his ministry was pretty much on a shoestring. They had like $6,000 in the bank. He'd gotten into trouble uh, in Georgia where he used to live. And uh, the song, How Great Is God, takes off. And all of a sudden, he's got a million dollars in the bank because people in the group started giving him money, claiming he claimed to be a prophet. And if they, you know, what he told them is like, if you give me money, God will bless you. And one of the guys gave money and God blessed him and a boom. Yeah, it went from $6,064 in the bank to... $1.56 million in donation the next year. Yeah. And uh, within two years, he had a million dollar house and a million dollars in a bank. And so, um, and it's really, uh, he's a master manipulator. He's got this whole idea that all the other churches are, are, are possessed by demons. And anyone who criticizes him is possessed by demon and he's the man of God. And so anyone who criticizes him is thrown out and cut off and, uh, he also does this thing called couch time where he'll sit with people for hours counseling them and learning all their secrets and use them against them to manipulate them. So it's just a there are families who haven't seen their loved ones in years uh, because Jolly told them to cut them off. It's an abusive church. And uh, and I think the the connection to other churches is all these songs. You wouldn't you know, this yeah. would be like any other small abusive group except the money from some of the money from copyright money from singing all these worship songs goes into this man's pocket and yeah. he's begun to get songwriting credits uh in it's fact, like he's got two songs. it's like if the branch davidians had been funded by like bill gaither or something yes exactly exactly yeah not that bill gaither he's not let's just be clear on that but that's kind of the you know the context Yes, exactly. It's like it's a little bit like um, I suppose Scientology and Tom Cruise. Okay, yeah, there on you a go. very smaller scale, or like T Tony Alamo ministry here in town, which which said the same thing, except because he had um, he had uh, fashion clothes that were paying okay. the bills. But this is uh, and it's only for, so just to give you a scale, there's only like forty people in the group at a time, 40, 50 people at most, and he gets a million dollars a year in donations. So. I don't know if any small church of 40 people or Bible study of 40 people that gets that kind of money. No, okay. none, basically. None. Oh, the, the other part is we, you know, the more we work, the more we found about his history that he, when he left, uh, he'd been in Chattanooga or just outside Ned, Chattanooga in a place called Ringgold, Georgia. 
And uh, we found out he'd really been run out of there because of accusations that he'd abused his stepdaughter yeah. uh, sexually and physically abused her and physically abused young women that worked for him. So the people in Chattanooga who ran him out of there thought he was gone. When they found out he was, he was so successful in Nashville, they were stunned. So there's uh, all this history that's been covered up. All right. Well, there's a couple of implications that we wanted to draw out of this. I mean, it, it it's not really a direct Southern Baptist story, but we have a, a connection here because of the, the music thing. We'll get to that in the second part. But one of the first parts is, I guess, just the uh, the, the spiritual shepherding that's going on and, and how, you know, with the discipleship movement that's going on in the church today, how that can be abused? Yeah, so so this really has roots in the sort of 70s and 80s, and Mar- the Maranatha churches had this. They had this thing called spiritual fathering or shepherding, and it really was designed to counter sort of weak discipleship in charismatic churches. So you had kind of abuses, and so what they said is really every, and this is true, I would think, every Christian needs a pastor in their lives. They need someone to mentor them. Uh even the Catholic Church has this. They call it um, spiritual directing, but we call it discipleship. You need someone to 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 mentor you to help with your spiritual growth. Yeah. And it and so in the in the 70s they started this thing called spiritual fathering. They called it or shepherding, where you'd submit voluntarily to a older, usually more mature Christian who'd help disciple you. And but what ended up happening in the charismatic movement is it became abusive. So that person, all of a sudden, you had to obey them. If you didn't obey them, you were sinning. And then they started to get, it got caught up in the prosperity gospel. You have to give me money because I'm your, I'm your connection to God. And pretty soon, instead of you having a relationship with God, you have your relationship to God is subject to this spiritual director. They have all the power. Yeah. And that, and that's kind of what we saw with this is that people were like, we do what Pop Jolly tells us, not yes. what God is telling us. And, and God tells Pop Jolly what to tell us. Yes. So th- this happened, I think, in the um, in a bigger scale in the Church of Christ movement. The Boston Church of Christ was a big uh, revival movement in that 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 kind of portion of evangelicalism, and they had the same thing. Uh, it just became abusive because there was there was too much power in someone's hand and no accountability for the leader. So, uh, and I think the second part is a small group can go off the rails pretty easily if it's not, if there isn't some supervision. Yeah. So this was a small group of Bible study, and they got the wrong pastor. Was it connected it was to a crazy. church at all? Uh, no, but they, they'd, all been part, they'd all been parts of a couple churches in, um, in Williamson County here south of uh, Nashville. So they'd known each other, but they weren't, uh, they'd come from several different churches, but they'd been church members somewhere else first. And then what J- Jolly was offering them this secret knowledge, right? Oh, I've got something secret that other churches don't have. So it became, it went fairly from simple, like people getting together to study the Bible and sing and pray for each other and seeking out. So, so really the people that joined this group were people who are, are kind of often in time of need, really looking for God's help, earnestly seeking after God, and someone has taken advantage of that. And, you know, that kind of moves us to the second point, though, is that Southern Baptists, in a way, indirectly, have basically funded this. Well, I think that's the, that's the irony. This is like the unintended consequence of uh, the success of How Great Is Our God and some other worship songs, because that launched this guy, Ed Cash's career. Yeah. 
and well, and, and not just that song, but the, the entire CCM music industry. Yeah, so so much of he's got so he's, many. He's he's got tentacles into everywhere with all his producing and everything. Yeah, so he's produced a ton of people. So, um, you know, the Gettys and um, well, Tomlin Crowder, DC Talk, Cadman's Call. I mean, everybody. Tomlin, Nicole Norderman. Yeah, I, I saw the list, and it's it's a mile long. Yeah. Tom's got a brand new Christmas album. There's one of Ed Cash's co-written songs on there, and, Ked, and Cash worked on producing it. You know, he produced a uh, the gospel. I think the Gospel Coalition did a record recently the with uh, or, songs from the or, Book or, of Luke. Record, I think so. I can't remember which one, but they did a re- they were a live recording with Gettys, and he was working on it. Mm. So he's got yeah. So it's the it's a, it's a and it's different. So so there are other other songs like if you think of. Um, you know, Martin Luther, for all his great theology, was very anti-Semitic. Yeah. He wrote, you know, uh, um, Mighty Fortress you know, is Our God. Mighty Fortress is Our God. Yeah. So uh, the man who wrote... Um, it Is Well With My Soul. It Is Well With My Soul, Horatio Spafford, was kicked out of his church and then went to the Holy Land and really formed a kind of an end times cult called Spaffordites in that in that setting. Mm-hmm. So uh, do we not sing that song anymore or do we keep singing it? That's a question. Yeah. Uh, and in this case, you know, if you if the song's in him though, Horatio Spafford's not getting any more money. His, his I suppose maybe his uh, family is, but he's not going to get any more money. In this case, you sing that song, and he's going to keep. And this uh, Ed Cash is going to keep getting money, which is going to keep giving to Wayne Jolly. Yeah. So you can directly fund it. It's a it's a complicated question. You know, the song is. I had a, I talked to a worship pastor. Uh, we ended up not going down that road in the story because the story was already six, you know, 5,000 words long. But, you know, he said, well, if the song is true theologically, we'll keep singing it. Even if they, because any song is going to be written by a sinful person. But yeah. this, there is the money, there's a money question here. And I think um, one reason we wrote it is that I think people should know what their money's going to. And they should know, um, the musicians should know who they're working with. You talked to Chris Tomlin and his people who got a statement from him for the article. They got a statement from them. They, you know, did I think did they all, really know how deep this was or not? I don't think so. I don't think so. I don't think anyone knew because it, it's sort of hidden in plain sight. I mean, one of the things this church has done is it's very interesting. So the, the they have a church called The Gathering, but it's not really – the church doesn't exist except as part of this Wayne Jolly Ministries. It's incorporated by Wayne Jolly Ministries, and so uh, Wayne – Controls all the finances, and his theology says you can't look at our finances, you can't look at our books, uh, because that's his this line called "a correction upward is always rebellion." Mm-hmm. Kind of an irony. He files a tax return with the uh, because he's not a church, he has to file a return with the uh, IRS. So yeah, nine nineties online. Yeah, nine nineties. You can read nine nineties, you can see where his money went. So he'll say, "I worldwide ministry took in nine million dollars over those in a nine year period." We looked at spent five just over five thousand dollars on missions um that's you know, not a lot of money for missions there bob not a lot of money made you know you can hardly get a you can hardly get a flight out of the country for five thousand dollars for one person yes for one person you know so he uh, um you know twenty five thousand dollars at least in landscaping he's he bought this house spent at least four hundred thousand dollars in upgrading the house um there's just there's no ministry so you know one of the people that used to work for him said she worked there and she said, wait, if you if you have five billion people that you're ministering to, how can nobody know who you are? Yeah. So you have to be aware. So I, I think one of the, the and this goes for any um, ministry you support, any nonprofit you support, any Christian ministry, you should always look at the money. 
the money doesn't lie. Yeah. The if someone won't show you the money. I mean, this happened with uh, Gospel for Asia, the big. Yeah. KP Yohannan. KP Yohannan. They did not reveal their financials. They said it was for security. Well, you start looking at their financials and they're not telling you the truth. Now, there's no sign in that group yet that money was mishandled, but there's a sign that no one was paying. At least we can't find money. Well, there's yeah. money that's. There's no, there's no sign that somebody embezzled the money. Yeah. A lot of questions, though, about who was in charge of the money. And millions there's no real sign that KP Yohannan's running a cult either. No, no sign that he's running a cult. But it's diff- that's different. There's not yeah. the cult end of it, but there's the money end of who is... Like, this. This in some ways, this Wayne Jolly Ministries is a picture of everything wrong in evangelical Christianity. There's the unaccountable leadership. There is the spiritual fathering there's the pen the uh, prosperity gospel i mean there's really this is like if you give me money god will give you a lot of money yeah. that's this, it this checks all those boxes it checks all those boxes yeah and well and it also and, kind of uh, encouraging is as southern baptists as we look at the imb and the funds that they're getting you know it's lottie moon christmas offering time a lot of churches yes. are giving that money and we know and imb makes it clear and post this you know every year at the southern baptist convention they they come up they're accountable to the convention uh, you can ask questions. People can, you know, at any time there there are questions asked of the leaders at, at both NAM and IMB. And also, you know, they're straightforward with the financials that 100% of the money that's given for the IMB and the Lottie Moon Christmas offering is going straight to the mission field. I mean, that has been just since day one, it seems, of the IMB that this money is going to missionaries. We know missionaries. We see the work that's going on around the world you can see where the money that you give is going. I mean, there's a direct connection there, unlike what we see in this picture uh, that you've painted in the, the Wayne Jolly story here. Yeah, I would say, I would say, um, having been a reporter, a secular newspaper, among the religious group that was probably most forthcoming about money were the Southern Baptists. They didn't mess around with money. Uh, you would go and you'd say, uh, the IMB, how you spend this money, they would tell you. Um, they, they were very, and they said, they would tell me that if you're a Southern Baptist church member and you show up at the IMB, they're going to, um, they're going to answer your questions. Um, and so, uh, I think that is the, and so if you're at a church, so we had this happen and maybe you don't want to, uh, you know, this happened with a church called Two Rivers Baptist here in town, where in Nashville, which ended up collapsing over transparency and finances Mm -hmm. became the issue. Um, and it became, and it was very unfortunate. Lots of people who are are sad that church uh, no longer exists the way it used to. Yeah. In part because the pastor wouldn't answer questions, and so people didn't trust that. So that's a whole that's a whole other story. Yeah, but, that's uh, another story that involves you getting thrown out of the church with uh, like. But what is with what armed, is interesting uh, by a policeman? Story, Jolly, Wayne, Wayne Jolly used that story to prove why you shouldn't. Uh, have uh, he turned that story on its head and said, "Look, that story is about uh, demon possessed church members taking down the man of God." Mm. It's really he used that to uh, what makes this guy a master manipulator is he'll use anything like that to show. Look, I said so. People left my group. I told you they were possessed by the devil. People, other churches have problems, and so I, I, we don't have problems here because I'm the man of God. So it's a very wow. So anything positive or negative, he can turn into, yes. I'm the man of God. Yeah, so I was watching one of those, I mean, I watched hours of this guy's sermons online, and 
I all of a sudden he's telling the story. I'm like, that's that's Tuvers Baptist, but that's not exactly how it happened at all. And look what he's saying. But people had heard about that, and so they said, look, there's the demons. I told you, it's very uh, so. There's a Baptist connection, unfortunately. Wow. Um, but but I remember re- hearing that, and I'm like, I know that story because I report on Tuvers Baptist. Yeah, I mean that and, was one of the big stories that you covered while you were here at the Tennessean. Tennessee and, and and there it was he's using this um using that as well for his advantage hmm. all right bob well hey let's shift gears real quick uh while i've got you on the line next week on the podcast amy and i are going to talk about the top 10 stories for southern baptist in the year of 2015 but uh while i've got you on the line I, i'd just like to hear your thoughts on just some big stories some of the bigger stories that you covered you know what are what are some of the things in 2015 that really stood out to you as as the big reporter in religion news for 2015, you know, one of the big stories was, in fact, their RNA. I used to be the president of the Religion News Writers Association, and I think one of the, you know, we published a top 10 list, but one of the stories this, I mean, there's so many stories this year. One of the big stories, of course, was the same sex marriage. Yeah. That was huge, and that's going to keep having, keep having um, repercussions. I think the other big story is the relationship between Christians and Islam. That's just going to be the huge story so those are going to be two that happened in 2015 well they were kind of happening before but the catalytic moments kind of happened in 2015 how are christians and muslims going to interact in the future how are we going to share the world where where are you going to have terrorism and defining the relationship because your neighbors and they're not going anywhere like there's a billion muslims in the world they're not going to leave and we have christians and muslims living together in the holy land for example how are they going to live together and what are going to be the how do you how do you have a distinctive Christian identity and find some places to cooperate with your neighbors who are Muslim? Hmm. What's that relationship going to be? That's a huge, huge question. We see it at Wheaton College right now, but we see it in this refugee question. Um, I think the whole question of who's an evangelical, because that that's a big it's a big tent, but the big it's a big tent a lot of corners and people are starting to argue about are you really evangelical yeah is it theology is it self-identified how's that all going to work mm-hmm. how does the change in ethnicity of christians because you know among older christians most americans 65 and older about 70 percent are white christians uh, among people 18 to 30 uh about a quarter are white christians Christians and just over that are I say actually one in five are white Christians, one in four are Christians of color. Hmm. So the people most likely to believe in God are Christians of color. That's going to change the the cultural dynamics. So a lot of older Christians with money and and positions of authority are white. A lot of younger Christians are not, and they see the world differently culturally. Um, and, and theologically, the culture affects how you live out your theology. So that's a big question. I think another big question for me is going to be what's going to happen to all the baby boomer megachurches? What's going to happen to all of them? Because there a lot of there's been very little turnover from those pastors the, of the Rick Warren, Bill Hybels era. Yeah. What's going to What's going to happen to those churches in the future? Are they going to be able to, to move on to a younger generation? Yeah. So those are kind of some of the big ones. And then the nuns, the people who are not affiliated. So here's a big story that I think that I, I'm going to work on, which I, is, is the 
the growing disparity between rich and poor when it comes to religion. Hmm. So poor poor people of color go to church. Poor white people don't go to church. Really? And who's, plan, who's planning church? Yeah, that's the very low levels of church giving. So so the the I mean, if you there's a great book. Robert Putnam has a great new book called Our Kids, and basically it's about the the uh, whether you're rich and poor in America it comes down to a birth lottery. If you have good, if you have middle class parents, you're okay. You're going to go to college. You're going to be fine. If you're born to poor parents, you're in a lot of trouble. And religion is becoming like that. Religion is becoming a luxury good and that only people with money go to church. And so that is, if the church, you know, Jesus remember said the poor will always be with us, but now they're not going to be in church. Mm. And when you look at all the church plants out there, where are they? In a suburban, areas, somewhat suburban, affluent areas. Affluent neighborhoods. So if you're going to build churches, who's going to go into, to, and people who, Okay, this will sound, this will be complicated. Poverty is often connected to all kinds of other social issues, right? If you, it's not that you are poor because, for example, you come from a broken family. But being in a broken family is one factor that affects poverty. Education, right? If you are in a school in a poor neighborhood, you're going to have a bad school. You may come from a broken family. You're not going to have as many. Yes, social assets, basically. Social assets. You're going to have social assets. This is a true thing doesn't mean you're a bad person you may not get married you may not get a good school you may not have a good job you're not going to have any of the you may not have the social um capital you need to survive in america and thrive in america and that is an issue that we're going to have to churches can play an important role in that they're a great role in that but people are going to bring their if you're going to church plant for example or do evangelism in in among people who don't have social assets there's going to be a lot more time and are we going to have room for people i think Mm. that's the thing i think that's a big question so how to church so the the relationship between poverty and church going is just huge Uh, i think that's going to be a story that we're going to have to look at so anyway those are some of my big stories those those stories i'm interested i'm just interested in that how do you uh connect because if if if, i mean that's part of the, the gospel message right yeah. Four had the good news preached to them. That's right, Luke 4. So if Luke 4 is not happening in our churches, that's a... I'm not talking about social... I'm not even talking about kind of the social justice stuff. I'm talking about just general religious Christian gospel stuff. Hmm. If people are not hearing the gospel because they're not connected, or if they're, they're, they are not part of our institutions, yeah, then that's, you know, that's a, that's a frightening thing to me. Uh-huh. Well, uh, one last question for you. Arguably the biggest story in the SBC this past year was the reorganization, restructuring at, at IMB, the financial issues that they've been going through. Where does that kind of land on the the larger religion news scale? Is it just kind of a blip? Or is it is it a major important thing? Does Is that, you know, outside of the SBC, is, is it as big of a deal? So, so our Religion Writers Association, which is kind of the professional religion writers, um, Movement, basically, that's our that's our association, professional association. It was number twenty five on our list. Wow, I think it's bigger, than that, but it's it's still that's still pretty good. I mean, there's lots of there are lots of religion stories that, and so that's that's still in the one of the biggest stories of the year. Didn't make top ten, but top twenty five. It's number twenty five, which is still big. Mm-hmm. Um, I think uh, I think it's a huge issue because it's the same. I think the IMB was 
the one institution in missions that seemed like it was un, um, impregnable to problems, right? Nothing could, nothing could stop it. It had institutional power, unlike other mission groups. And it's the biggest sort of self-funded. The way that, that um, the IMB is funded is centrally funded. You send all the money to um, the IMB, Baptist send it there, and you've got this joint um, common pool of money. And it sends out. A lot of other churches have moved to a more direct funding. That my church sends on a missionary, and I send them money. They yeah. they fundraise themselves. IMB missionaries hadn't had to do that, and so um, you're the biggest group doing that, and one of the most successful. Well, now there's the question: uh, Can that strategy survive in the future? And I think that's what the IMB is trying to deal with. It just is. It's just that's changed in our culture. People don't want to fund centrally funded things anymore. So you have to find ways to promote the cooperative program. You've got to find ways to make direct connections with missionaries. And then I think there's not as much money out there as there used to be. So the IMB had tremendous growth for a long time. And I think they had aspirations to have even more missionaries and more money. And so I think they finally hit the, the window. Mm. They finally hit the limit of how much money you could get. Um, and there's more money out there in, in Baptist life, but they're, but the you're just not getting that money. The centrally so, funded, they, they kind of hit that max of the centrally funded formula. They may have done that. They may hmm. have done that. And so that's the, that's uh, you know, other groups have had that issue and they've figured out how to adapt to that question, have sort of a mixed group, mixed funding source. And how do you get more people involved? Um, I think because they they were so big, the IMB could really dictate how people were involved in missions, Baptist for missions. This is how you come in. But they also had high barriers that you couldn't be connected to the IMB if you were, and they had some part-time things, but if you were, say, someone who had a job overseas or other kind of a student overseas, there weren't ways for you to get involved. Mm -hmm. Or if you were a local church missionary sent out by your church, but you weren't... Um, funded by the IMB, how did you connect with an IMB missionary? Yeah. There weren't ways for you to be officially affiliated that they're trying to sort through. Yeah, now all of that is changing. Yeah. Bob, I appreciate your insight, appreciate your reporting. It's always good to talk to you, and uh, hopefully see you more often soon. All right, talk to you soon. Thanks, Bob. All right, thank you. All right, thanks for that, Jonathan. I'm really, really grateful that Bob was able to talk with us. Um, I so appreciate his work, and it, it's really demonstrated in this piece that he did. And um, love the just reflecting on some of the biggest stories. I'm looking forward to our chance to do that in the next couple of weeks. Yep, so can't wait to, to next week. Be sure to join us. We'll talk about those kind of walk through 2015 in the SBC and nice. talk about some of those big stories. So, Amy, that's going to bring us to my favorite part of the week. This week in SBC history, blow our minds. Well, uh, this is more of a milestone, not necessarily highlighting a you know interesting story or anything. But in 1959, um, in this week, um, the retirement of R. G. Lee was announced from oh, okay. Bellevue Baptist Church. Yeah. Um, now uh, he was uh, at that time um, had they they the story in Baptist Press said he was the only three term president of the SBC in the last two decades. So he was a three termer, um, and I, I'll have to look and see when that that whole thing changed. But uh, his his retirement was announced and then uh, was effective going to be effective in February 1960. Um, obviously, the one that 
the the sermon that he was most known for was the one called Payday Someday. Yes. Um, which it said he preached that thing more than six hundred times. Huh. That's that's incredible. Well, that to was me. before the internet, so a lot of people, if you you hadn't seen him, that's true. You, no you podcast. You probably only had one or two times to see him in your life, maybe. You had one shot. Yeah. So yeah, it, it makes sense, and travel and evangelist type of thing. I mean, I I would be interested to know how many times Jerry Vines has preached uh, a Baptist in his Bible. I mean, yeah, that's that, that's fair. Um, he was there uh, three decades, um, increased Bellevue from a membership of 1,400 to more than 9,300 wow. members. Wow. So, um, you know, a lot of times those of us in, in our generation, you, you think Bellevue, historically, yeah. you think Adrian Rogers, uh-huh. but you forget there was already a, a big figure, you know, before that. Yeah. He was now, Adrian Rogers before Adrian Rogers was Adrian that's, Rogers. That's right. Now, what's always interesting to me, uh, you're going to have to help me out with this, but I get confused because, as I said, I don't have a, a lot of personal history. So there, until I became Southern Baptist as an adult, I didn't know who any of these people were. So, um, so it's only been in the last few years that I knew who R.G. Lee was. But in our generation, the folks over at Baptist 21 are typically, they, they're the ones that have done the most or said the most publicly about him. A lot of those folks are also the ones who tweet about football, and there is a football player that goes by. Is it RG3? Yes. So every time I see that on Twitter, I, like, stop because I'm trying to figure out who it is, and I think of the two. Robert Griffin III is not the same as RG Lee. Well, I've never told anyone that until now, but I I just have to say mentally, because I have no real point of reference. Um really for either, but that's, that always gets me thrown off because I'll see it's the same people tweeting or putting out about RG3 and RG Lee. Um, and it just mentally is, is a thing. So that's my confession right there. But anyway, really huge figure in, um, Baptist history and obviously impacted a lot of lives. And even today, there are people that still talk about that, that one sermon and everything that he did. And so he uh, he he made this big announcement and this big change this week in SBC history. Yeah, that's a fascinating thing. There's only been four pastors at Bellevue since 1927. So in the last 90 years, give or take, there's only been four pastors. R.G. Lee, 1927 to 1960, he lasted 33 years. Uh, Ramsey Pollard followed him uh, another 12 years, 1960 to 1972. And then Adrian Rogers took over in 72 and lasted 33 years on his own. Uh, and then Steve Gaines, who's uh, the currently there, been there about 10 years now. That's incredible history. So, uh, you know, there's, there's a, a legacy there that R.G. Lee started uh, one of the, the largest church, I think, in Tennessee, the largest Baptist church in Tennessee uh, continues to be. And uh, so that's kind of neat that uh, on this day, 1959, or on this week, I guess, in 1959, announced his, uh, res- his retirement. His retirement. So, yes. And actually, he, he preached his first congregation, his first sermon to his congregation, basically last week in 1927. So, so December the 11th. That, yeah. So there you go. December to December. Yeah. So, it's, it was a big month. Uh, phenomenal uh, growth under his uh, leadership at Bellevue. So. Yes. One more note on R.G. Lee. You got me almost saying R.G. Three now. Uh, one more <laughs> note. He is the pastor who introduced a young Billy Graham to the SBC in 1951. 
So he's he's part of quite a bit of history. Yeah, he he pre, he presided over the 1951 meeting in San Francisco, in which mm-hmm. Billy Graham preached to the SBC for the first time. Pretty incredible impact. Yeah. So just a fascinating legacy there. Uh, I need to read up more on him. But that will lead us to our resources of the week. Amy, what you got this week? So mine is actually one that's been around for a very long time, but people probably don't know about it, or at least, you know, several years. It's a documentary that was on my mind this week. It's called um, Called to be Free. I think you maybe can order a DVD. I'm not sure, but it's free on YouTube. So I've provided the YouTube link. Yeah, just watch it for free. Yes. Now you have to be patient because remember this was uh, this was filmed years ago, so it's not going to have any of the newer technology. Uh, we'll have to adjust. You have to adjust your eyes and and things to kind of an older style. But you know the, this story from Bob Smetana this week so crazy and so unbelievable. And we often will have one of two reactions: either we just can't get over how weird it is. Or we can get very, we can race to judgment really quick and just talk about, well, this is what happens when you get away from biblical fidelity, and that's true. But what we also need to remember is that um, that the Holy Spirit can do anything, can do a miraculous work. And so there was a, a, a group that I was introduced to when I was working at Lifeway. They are, um, it's, a, it's a denomination called Grace Communion International. Um, They are part of the National Association of Evangelicals. It's an evangelical denomination. I learned about them because they participate in the Church Planters Leadership Forum there. Um, But they actually are a group that once was a cult. Um, They were the Worldwide Church of God. And I watched this documentary again uh, over the last few days because of this story coming out. And there are so many similarities in the two, just with one individual kind of leading the whole thing. Everything that he said was not questioned. Um, a lot of kind of odd um, belief systems, things like that. And um, basically the story is that three people in this group became convicted that maybe the Bible did not say all these things that they had been believing. And they formed a doctrinal committee and the Lord essentially converted um, a denomination. Wow. And it's it, the documentary is about an hour and 20 minutes. I cry when I watch it. This is the third time I've watched it. It's, it, it is so compelling. The story is unbelievable. And it, and it really made me think about this story from uh, about the Gathering International in a really different way, just watching it and saying, Lord, do a work there uh, like you did with these people. And so... Again, you got to get past that there's, you know, technically uh, it's, it's a little dated, uh, but the content is absolutely worth it. Um, just, just an incredible story. Hmm. All right. Well, I've got it pulled up. I may have to have this plan later while I continue to work, uh, yeah. but uh, just kind of have some background noise. So it sounds fascinating. I'm going to jump in with my resource of the week, the IMB Missions Intensives. J.D. Greer and David Platt will be speaking at this. Uh, basically, it, it answers, what is a missions intensive? So it's a gathering of senior pastors and church leaders prayerfully seeking God concerning his global mission and the local church's role in that mission. Missions intensive is a two-day conference event exclusively for lead pastors and two to three select key church leaders. It includes plenary sessions, practical how-to sessions, and church evaluation process and basically, they're inviting you to come sit around the table with IMB leaders, pastors, and mission leaders to discuss God's search for the nations and how each local church can play their part in fulfilling Christ's commission. Basically, this is a 
I wouldn't say a mini version of Sin Conference, but it's more of a practical how can my church be involved in what is going on around the world through missions. Yeah, I mean, it sounds to me like, so you take the Sin Conference and that's sort of for everyone. How can we all be on mission? And so that feels like math conference. This feels like a, uh, almost like a symposium or a yeah. think tank, an, an opportunity for to pour into leaders. Yeah, um, really and, how to mobilize, yeah. how to equip, how to assess, and how to send. Yeah, and you have to have both. You have to have things like this, yeah. an intensive that that works on um, how do you do this. And then you also have to have events that are, are really designed to inspire. And uh, so uh, this is a great, great thing. You can register for that at missionsintensive.com. Uh, registration fees look like about $109 for a senior pastor, $89 for students. So if you're, I guess you're a student at Southeastern and a pastor. You can go for $89. But they're going to be hosting these around the country. This is not the only one. They're going to have one in February in Durham, North Carolina, one in March, at the end of March in Louisville, Kentucky, another at Sandals Church out there in California, in Riverside, California, on April 20th and 21st. And they're bringing it here to Nashville at Brentwood Baptist Church, September 19th and 20th of 2016. So uh, there's going to be four of those at least, it looks like, in 2016 for you to be a part of. Uh, find one in your area and get your church really plugged into what IMB is doing through these missions-intensive uh, conferences. Fantastic. Well, that's going to do it for this week's episode of SBC This Week. We're going to be back next week talking about the biggest stories in the SBC of 2015. Amy, any ideas what may be you know kind of the biggest one? Um, I'm going to guess that most of our listeners probably know what's the biggest one, (laughs) but uh, I think the IMB is going to be the one that most people were talking about. Um, Lots of of, uh, changes there, obviously, Uh, but there's a lot. There's a lot more that we can think through, and some of it we may not... We may not even remember, uh, but then when you start looking back, it's like Times Person of the Year or Barbara Walters' Most Fascinating People. You forget what happened in February. Maybe so. you could be the Barbara Walters of the SBC, Amy. You're the one that does all the interviews, so you're kind of the Barbara Walters of the SBC. Wow. Okay. Uh, I think it's time to end the show then on that note. So, Amy, <laughs> we'll see you next week. See you next week.